Hello, Chapel Hill. Good morning. Uh, I always forget to get nervous until I get up here, and I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> it is great to be here today. I'm Jacob, and this is Rachel. Um, we are, are missionaries in Marseille, France. We started ministry in Marseille about five years ago. Uh, our two kids, who are way back there, Aaron and Elisa, neither of them perked up when I said that. They're not paying any attention. Um, we absolutely love living in France and doing ministry there, and I'm going to share a little bit about that. But before I do, I want to do a little educational moment for everybody. Uh, some of you might want to go to France someday, so I thought that I could help pass on to you some useful words. Uh, but I don't have a lot of time, so we're going to do 10 words, important words, 10 words in 30 seconds. And I promise you at the end of it, you will remember all of them. That's how good of a teacher I am. All right. Are you ready? All right. Here we go. Okay. First word, real simple. This is called what? Baguette. Very good. Very good. All right. Next word. All right. This is a violin bow. This is a violin bow in French. Also baguette. So baguette. <laughs> simple enough. Chopsticks actually are called baguettes as well. Um, magic wands, baguette de magie, baguette. Uh, Baguette, 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 and legs can be called baguettes as well. So there you go. Now, do you guys remember all those? Yeah? A, great job, A+. You guys passed the test. You're bilingual now. You're bilingual now. Congratulations. Honestly, the most important word in France, so you're probably good. All right. So, as I mentioned, we moved to Marseille about five years ago. For those who don't know, Marseille is located on the Mediterranean Sea uh, on France's southern coast. It's a city of about a million people. Uh, Marseille's history is one of immigration, as you can kind of see on this map. It's surrounded by um, all sorts of countries, but primarily North Africa below. In recent decades, there's been a mass wave of immigration from Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco. Uh, so, there's also a lot of refugees from countries like the Middle East, other parts of Africa as well. Only about 2% of the population is Christian, Protestant rather. Um, uh, there's a large Muslim population due to about 40% of the population being from North Africa. Uh, Marseille is also home to the largest French-speaking university in the world. So it's also a hub of a lot of young international learners. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful, diverse, messy city and we dearly love it, except for the semi-annual garbage strikes. Uh, those are real pictures that Rachel took. Um, so, yeah, fun stuff. Um, so, uh, the immigrant and refugee population, as well as the university there, uh, were two of the big reasons we were initially drawn to Marseille. And the ministry projects that we work on today reflect those demographics as well. We're involved in a variety of projects, including relational discipleship and evangelism, community development projects, church ministries, uh, and partnership with nonprofits focused on social aid for the most needy in Marseille. Rachel has worked with a ministry called the Cafe Club for about three years now. It's a weekly Friday afternoon cultural program for international university students and young adults. Uh, normally it's a time of encouragement and community for young people who are often new to Marseille and who are lonely. Uh, Rachel has uh, invested heavily in this ministry. Uh, in the next year or so, the current director, 
director will be retiring, and Rachel will be taking over a large amount of the responsibilities there. Please pray for her over this next year as this transition begins. I host a weekly language exchange on Thursday evenings, uh, which attracts newcomers to Marseille as well, uh, and many people who are also lonely and looking for friends. The stated goal at these meetups is to invite people to practice their English and their French, but often we find that folks are desperate for connection, particularly after COVID. And this ongoing event is a wonderful way to meet those needs and to build relationships. We've made many long-term friendships there, and it continues to be a weekly ritual for many of our regulars. Additionally, we've been hosting a game afternoon uh, once a month at our church that is focused on the surrounding neighborhood. We love to invite our friends and neighbors who live close by and are looking for community. For example, one of our close neighbors is a refugee from Iraq. Her daughter is a friend of our son's at school. They love to attend this game afternoon every time we hold it. We often have friends come to this event and then join us the next Sunday morning uh, for church. At our last event before the summer, we even had a Muslim family from our son's school playing games at the church with us and mingling with other Christians. One of our key focuses in ministry right now is a partnership with an association called Maraban, which means to welcome in Arabic. They are a Protestant association who serves some of the most needy people in our neighborhood through weekly food distribution, childcare, French and English classes, help with administrative needs, which is huge, Bible studies, and sewing classes. Their focus is holistic, caring for the body and mind as well as the soul. We love what they're doing, and we're devoting more and more of our weekly schedule to partnership with them. We'd love to invite you to pray for the ministry in Marseille. Uh, please pray for the relationships that we have built and continue to build with many friends and neighbors. Pray that we might show Christ's love to them in word and in deed. Pray for Maraban and all the vital work that they are doing among the most needy and marginalized. Pray for us in the coming year as we look at avenues to expand what they're doing to help more families in our area. Uh, please also pray for an English Bible study we've been running um, for a few international friends. And then pray for our local church that they might grow in their desire to spread the gospel in our community. Thank you for praying with us, supporting us, and encouraging us. And it's really great to be with you all today. Okay, so Jake uh, just gave you the, a bit of our ministry overview, and I am just really excited. It's a real joy to be speaking before you this morning. I grew up in this church from toddlerhood to the day I left for a Bible school program in Costa Rica, just before my 18th birthday. Yesterday, I dug up a few old photos of my time at Chapel Hill, uh, Christmas programs and VBS, and yes, that is my dad with a green mohawk in the picture. <laughs> my love of Jesus and my call to missions was very much cultivated in this church. So it's a joy to be here today getting the opportunity to share something that I've been learning from the scriptures. I started studying for my Master's of Divinity at Pillar Seminary in January 2021. Jake and I are both slowly working our way through the degree a couple classes at a time, which we try to squeeze into our busy ministry schedules. This pro program has been so life-giving, enriching our personal faith walks as well as our ministry projects. Over the past year, our seminary co 
cohort studied biblical poetry and the prophetic books of the Bible. So as I considered the work that we do in Marseille and the scripture passages that inform that ministry, it felt natural to select a portion from a prophetic book to study together today. Providentially, I chose a passage weeks ago, the same chapter which Betsy read a few verses from in her message last week. In fact, I am so grateful for the wisdom that what Betsy blessed us with last Sunday because it perfectly fits with what we'll look at today. In particular, the twofold nature of the mission of God's people, how we are called to make God known in both word and in deed, how we can be a part of God's big restoration project with our words and with our deeds. This morning, we will walk through Isaiah 58, but before I read it, I'd like to share a little bit about the context. Most scholars think that this portion of the book of Isaiah addresses the restoration community in Jerusalem. These are God's people who had returned from the Babylonian exile in 538 BC, along with those who had been able to remain in the land. The exiles returning to their home country faced a ruined land, a destroyed temple, hostile neighbors, and ongoing Persian rule. Although the people were restored to the land, as Yahweh had promised long ago, the covenant community of God's people needed to reestablish their community after decades of exile. This was an important moment then for the prophet to deliver a message about the essential principles of God's law, an important message from Yahweh about how the people were to live in the land. These words show us what the Lord cares about, so they are as important to us today as they were to the restoration community 2,500 years ago. When we read Isaiah 58, we will see how the prophet addresses the people's empty religious rituals before emphasizing the importance of ethical living and caring for one's neighbors. We will see how the prophet commands the people to engage in the service of others, particularly of the most needy in their communities. It is an incredible piece of poetic literature that guides our hearts to better understand the heart of God, so that whether in Egan, Minnesota, Marseille, France, or anywhere else on earth, we lean into the mission that God calls us to, his amazing plan to restore all that has been broken. So I'm going to read through now Isaiah 58. Okay. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. 
Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your neighbor with, share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." As we walk through this chapter together, I am going to bring our attention to some of the poetic features the prophet uses to share his message. I've done a little highlighting on some of the verses to help illustrate those points. Chief among these poetic features in Isaiah 58 is the motif of fasting. Isaiah uses the motif of fasting to illustrate the Lord's message to the original audience. You'll notice it's mentioned several times in these verses. Fasting is a voluntary pause from the intake of food, a ritual designed to remind God's people of their dependence on God. However, as we see in verses 3 and 4, the prophet accuses the people that during their fast, they do as they please, rather than doing what would bring delight to God. Their religious observance is not centered on God's pleasure, but on their own. In fact, on their days of fasting, they take part in exploitation of others, quarreling, strife, and striking their workers. These are weighty accusations, and yet the people continue to fast as if nothing is wrong. There is a disconnect between the people's pious practices and their lack of moral conduct. So in response, the prophet declares the consequences of their actions. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. The people's cries to God are essentially ignored. Although they are fasting, this religious ritual has been made empty by their lack of care for the people around them. 
The prophet then asks a series of rhetorical questions, starting in verse 5. And these questions highlight the inadequate nature of the people's religious observances. The obvious responses here, though not written, would resound in the hearer's mind. No, no, and no. No, this is not the kind of fast the Lord has chosen. No, this is not a day acceptable to the Lord. The rituals of the community are totally inadequate, the Lord says here. Note the imagery here, bowing one's head and lying in sackcloth. It seems like the people are more focused on the performance of fasting rather than the relational aspect to the Lord. These questions demonstrate that God doesn't want just their religious rituals. These outward actions are not enough. He wants more. Pausing here for a minute, it is easy for me to see within myself and within the church today how we can fall short of the faithful obedience that God desires. It can be easy to fall back on our religious rituals like going to church or tithing, forgetting the greater principles of the law like love, mercy, and grace. Do we proclaim Jesus with our lips, but never with our hands? The Israelite community failed to engage in the redemptive mission of God. Their religious rituals should have brought them into a more intimate relationship with God, one which bore the fruit of making him known among the nations through word and deed. But their days of fasting did not have this effect because their behavior had so deviated from the desires of God's heart. Beginning in verse 6, the next part of the poem shifts the reader's focus from the inadequate observance to fasting to the principled living that the Lord commands. After rejecting the people's fasting earlier in the passage, now Yahweh equates ethical living with fasting. He's saying, this is the type of fasting I really want. Even though what is described here is not really a form of fasting, this metaphor helps demonstrate the importance of these social actions. These actions of profound and generous service. The Lord encourages the community that treating one's neighbors with care is vitally important, as important as their religious observances, if not more so. Notice the examples of care that the prophet uses here. Their actions of basic necessity like shelter, clothing, and food. The community was content to fast while neglecting their neighbor's most basic needs. But the Lord told the people here through his prophet that they needed to serve him with deeds too. They needed to care for their neighbor, just as he had laid out for his people since the beginning, and just like Jesus later modeled to us in the gospels as he healed the sick and fed the hungry. I wish I had time today to talk more about how Jesus' work and words reflect Isaiah 58, but I noted a couple helpful references from Matthew in your bulletin. To draw your attention to one more detail in this section, the use of the word yoke communicates a sad picture of exploitation and oppression. A yoke is used to, to attach draft animals together for work 
So this image, especially to the original audience, would evoke a sense of heavy burden. The Lord, therefore, commands the people not only to remove the yoke, but also to break every yoke or smash every yoke, as other versions say. This emphasizes a permanent turning away from their current practices of oppression. Apparently, although the Israelites had just been rescued from their own yoke of exile, they needed this reminder from the Lord to uphold the freedom of others. This is part of the ethical, principled living that Yahweh called his people to embrace. Moving on to verses 8 through 12, I'd like to point out how the prophet employs a cause and effect structure. You'll notice if-then statements in this section and actually through the rest of the chapter. If the people would obey the Lord, then this is the way that life could be for them. If the people do what is described in these verses, then the Lord will heal the people and make them righteous. The glory of the Lord will guard them, and he will answer their call. I think that the hope described in these verses is beautiful and abundant. He uses water and garden imagery. It's all we could ever wish for as the people of God. All the desires of the people's hearts could be realized because of their obedient service of others. This is the way of life that God called them and calls us to be a part of. To conclude this chapter, the prophet shifts our attention from fasting to Sabbath. The poem began by showing the emptiness of the people's religious observance of fasting. Next, the Lord said that the kind of fasting he really desires is ethical, sacrificial living. Now our attention is drawn to another religious observance, Sabbath, a weekly day of rest. These verses call on the people to appropriately honor the Sabbath, which is fitting as we have already read how the community's fasting was unacceptable to the Lord. But I think that this thematic shift to Sabbath could also move the people's heart to a place of thankfulness. It is a kindness that the Lord has given us a wonderful gift in Sabbath rest. Though Yahweh calls us to join hands with him in restoration work, we do not need to bear the burden of saving the world on our human shoulders. This call to Sabbath reminds me that the Lord is sovereign and he is good. He will carry out his mission of restoration of all things. And it is a gift that we can rest in him. And that Sabbath can be a joy and, and a delight for us and also to the Lord. Notice the last few lines of the poem. Through the practice of obedient Sabbath rest, the prophet writes, the Lord will provide a feast for us. How appropriate that in a chapter about fasting, the Lord concludes by saying that the people will feast when they rightly serve him. What Isaiah 58 says about caring for the needy and vulnerable among us, in part, informs the work that Jake and I do in Marseille. Jake already shared a great overview of our projects, but to close our time together, I'll share a brief story about our friend, Elena. 
Last October, a young homeless woman from Moldova wandered into the cafe club looking for help. She had been without work or housing for about six months, and she had meandered her way through Europe until she had arrived at Marseille that very day. She had walked straight down from the train station to the main street where the cafe club meets, and she walked in the door asking for help. After many efforts to find emergency housing proved fruitless, and Elena had resigned herself to sleeping on the street that night, Jake and I felt, offered to, to, felt led to offer Elena a place to stay that night. She was very reluctant to accept, but she finally walked home with me, ate dinner with us, and end up, ended up staying with our family for a month until we had secured transitional housing for her. In the 10 months since that first day, our relationship with Elena and my ongoing care for her has been one of the most challenging things I have ever done. This journey has not been easy nor straightforward, as every victory for Elena, like landing a part-time job or passing French classes, has taken a colossal effort, <laughs> along with a lot of prayer. I know many of you have prayed for us in this situation. But loving Elena has also been one of the most meaningful things I have done in my life. It has been an opportunity to truly welcome the stranger, to feed the hungry, and to shelter the homeless. This is the ministry of love that God calls us to. Do you remember what the Lord said of his people in verse 12? These people who are living in the little, literal ruins of their devastated city. He said they would be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. There are so many different ways we can repair walls and restore streets in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, churches, and beyond. By the saving grace of Jesus' death and resurrection, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God invites us every day to join hands with him in restoration work, in the place where he's put us, and in the ways that he's equipped us. We serve an amazing God who loves us very, very much. That's one of the things I come away from this passage thinking about. Look at who he cares about. Look at what he's doing for us. God makes beauty from ashes. He feeds the hungry. He turns mourning into dancing. He breaks the chains of sin and death. He gives hope to those who despair. He brings light to the darkness. He goes after the lost sheep. He is a friend to the stranger, and he gives family to the lonely. He turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and he heals what is broken. As the Lord says in Revelation 21.5, I am making all things new. We serve an amazing God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for who you are. Thank you for all that you call us to be. 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for redeeming us by the blood of Christ and for inviting us into restoration work with you to be your hands and feet in our neighborhoods. Help us be obedient to this message, to this call to be more than empty religious observers, but instead active and spirit-filled representatives of you, caring for others in word and deed. Thank you for the gift of Sabbath rest. May we learn to serve you and love you better every day. Amen.